Hey listeners, just a quick note before we begin. If you are teaching constitutional law for the spring 2023 semester and there's a particular case on your syllabus that isn't already in the show's library, but you'd like to make it available to your students, please reach out to me and time permitting, I will record it for you. Because if it's on your syllabus, it's on someone else's syllabus too. And this show exists solely as an educational tool, whether that's for students or the general public. You can email me directly at pippa at whatscotusrotus, that's P-I-P-P-A-H, at whatscotusrotus.com. We now continue with part two of the 2017 Opinion of the Court in Cooper v. Harris. Part 4 We now look west to District 12, making its fifth appearance before this court. This time, the district's legality turns, and turns solely, on which of two possible reasons predominantly explains its most recent reconfiguration. The plaintiffs contended at trial that the General Assembly chose voters for District 12 as for District 1 because of their race. More particularly, they urged that the Assembly intentionally increased District 12's BVAP in the name of ensuring preclearance under the VRA's Section 5. But North Carolina declined to mount any defense, similar to the one we have just considered for District 1, that Section 5's requirements in fact justified race-based changes to District 12, perhaps because Section 5 could not reasonably be understood to have done so. Instead, the state altogether denied that racial considerations accounted for, or, indeed, played the slightest role in District 12's redesign. According to the state's version of events, Senator Rucho, Representative Lewis, and Dr. Hoffeller moved voters in and out of the district as part of a strictly political gerrymander without regard to race. The mapmakers drew their lines, in other words, to pack District 12 with Democrats, not African Americans. After hearing evidence supporting both parties' accounts, the district court accepted the plaintiffs. Getting to the bottom of a dispute like this one poses special challenges for a trial court. In the more usual case alleging a racial gerrymander, where no one has raised a partisanship defense, the court can make real headway by exploring the challenged district's conformity to traditional districting principles, such as compactness and respect for county lines. In Shaw II, for example, this court emphasized the highly irregular shape of then-District 12 in concluding that race predominated in its design. But such evidence loses much of its value when the state asserts partisanship as a defense, 
because a bizarre shape, as of the new District 12, can arise from a political motivation as well as a racial one. And, crucially, political and racial reasons are capable of yielding similar oddities in a district's boundaries. That is because, of course, racial identification is highly correlated with political affiliation. As a result of those redistricting realities, a trial court has a formidable task. It must make a sensitive inquiry into all circumstantial and direct evidence of intent to assess whether the plaintiffs have managed to disentangle race from politics and prove that the former drove a district's lines. Our job is different and generally easier. As described earlier, we review a district court's finding as to racial predominance only for clear error, except when the court made a legal mistake. Under that standard of review, we affirm the court's finding so long as it is plausible. We reverse only when left with the definite and firm conviction that a mistake has been committed. And in deciding which side of that line to come down on, we give singular deference to a trial court's judgments about the credibility of witnesses. That is proper, we have explained, because the various cues that bear so heavily on the listener's understanding of and belief in what is said are lost on an appellate court later sifting through a paper record. In light of those principles, we uphold the district court's finding of racial predominance respecting District 12. The evidence offered at trial, including live witness testimony subject to credibility determinations, adequately supports the conclusion that race, not politics, accounted for the district's reconfiguration and no error of law infected that judgment. Contrary to North Carolina's view, the district court had no call to dismiss this challenge just because the plaintiffs did not proffer an alternative design for District 12 as circumstantial evidence of the legislature's intent. Section A. We begin with some facts and figures showing how the redistricting of District 12 affected its racial composition. As explained above, District 12, unlike District 1, was approximately the right size as it was. North Carolina did not, indeed could not, much change its total population. But by further slimming the district and adding a couple of knobs to its snake-like body, the General Assembly incorporated tens of thousands of new voters and pushed out tens of thousands of old ones. And those changes followed racial lines. To be specific, the new District 12 had 35,000 more African Americans of voting age and 50,000 fewer whites of that age. Those voter exchanges produced a sizable jump 
in the district's BVAP from 43.8% to 50.7%. The Assembly thus turned District 12, as it did District 1, into a majority-minority district. As the plaintiffs pointed out at trial, Rucho and Lewis had publicly stated that racial considerations lay behind District 12's augmented BVAP. In a release issued along with their draft districting plan, the two legislators ascribed that change to the need to achieve preclearance of the plan under Section 5 of the VRA. At that time, Section 5 covered Guilford County and thus prohibited any retrogression in the electoral position of racial minorities there. And part of Guilford County lay within District 12, which meant that the Department of Justice would closely scrutinize that district's new lines. In light of those facts, Rucho and Lewis wrote, Because of the presence of Guilford County in the 12th District, we have drawn our proposed 12th District at a BVAP level that is above the percentage of BVAP found in the current 12th District. According to the two legislators, that race-based measure would ensure preclearance of the plan. Thus, the district court found Rucho's and Lewis's own account evinced intentionality as to District 12's racial composition. Because of the VRA, they increased the number of African Americans. Hoffeller confirmed that intent in both deposition testimony and an expert report. Before the redistricting, Hoffeller testified, some black residents of Guilford County fell within District 12, while others fell within neighboring District 13. The legislators, he continued, decided to reunite the black community in Guilford County into the 12th. Why? Hoffeller responded in language the district court emphasized, in order to be cautious and draw a plan that would pass muster under the Voting Rights Act. Likewise, Hoffeller's expert report highlighted the role of the VRA in altering District 12's lines. Mindful that Guilford County was covered by Section 5, Hoffeller explained, the legislature determined that it was prudent to reunify the county's African-American community into District 12. That change caused the district's compactness to decrease. But that was a sacrifice well worth making. It would avoid the possibility of a VRA charge that would inhibit preclearance. The state's preclearance submission to the Justice Department indicated a similar determination to concentrate black voters in District 12. One of the concerns of the redistricting chairs, North Carolina there noted, had to do with the Justice Department's years-old objection to a failure by the state 
to create a second majority minority district, that is, in addition to District 1. The submission then went on to explain that after considering alternatives, the redistrictors had designed a version of District 12 that would raise its BVAP to 50.7%. Thus, concluded the state, the new District 12 increases the African-American community's ability to elect their candidate of choice. In the district court's view, that passage once again indicated that making District 12 majority-minority was no mere coincidence, but a deliberate attempt to avoid perceived obstacles to preclearance. And still, there was more. Perhaps the most dramatic testimony in the trial came when Congressman Mel Watt, who had represented District 12 for some 20 years, recounted a conversation he had with Rucho in 2011 about the district's future makeup. According to Watt, Rucho said that his leadership had told him that he had to ramp the minority percentage in District 12 up to over 50% to comply with the voting rights law. And further, that it would then be Rucho's job to go and convince the African-American community that such a racial target made sense under the act. The district court credited Watt's testimony about the conversation, citing his courtroom demeanor and consistent recollection under probing cross-examination. In the court's view, Watt's account was a piece with all the other evidence, including the redistrictor's on-the-nose attainment of a 50% BVAP, indicating that the General Assembly, in the name of VRA compliance, deliberately redrew District 12 as a majority-minority district. The state's contrary story, that politics alone drove decision-making, came into the trial mostly through Hoffeller's testimony. Hoffeller explained that Rucho and Lewis instructed him, first and foremost, to make the map as a whole more favorable to Republican candidates. One agreed-on stratagem in that effort was to pack the historically Democratic District 12 with even more Democratic voters, thus leaving the surrounding districts more reliably Republican. To that end, Hoffeller recounted, he drew District 12's new boundaries based on political data, specifically the voting behavior of precincts in the 2008 presidential election between Barack Obama and John McCain. Indeed, he claimed, he displayed only this data, and no racial data on his computer screen while mapping the district. In part of his testimony, Hoffeller further stated that the Obama-McCain election data explained his incorporation of the black but not the white parts of Guilford County 
then located in District 13. Only after he drew a politics-based line between those adjacent areas, Hoffeller testified, did he check the racial data and find out that the resulting configuration of District 12 did not have a Section 5 issue. The district court, however, disbelieved Hoffeller's asserted indifference to the new district's racial composition. The court recalled Hoffeller's contrary deposition testimony, his statement repeated in only slightly different words in his expert report, that Rucho and Lewis decided to shift African-American voters into District 12 in order to ensure preclearance under Section 5. And the court explained that even at trial, Hoffeller had given testimony that undermined his blame-it-on-politics claim. Right after asserting that Rucho and Lewis had told him not to use race in designing District 12, Hoffeller added a qualification, except perhaps with regard to Guilford County. As the district court understood, that is the kind of exception that goes pretty far towards swallowing the rule. District 12 saw a net increase of more than 25,000 black voters in Guilford County, relative to a net gain of fewer than 35,000 across the district. So the newly added parts of that county played a major role in pushing the district's BVAP over 50%. The district court came away from Hoffeller's self-contradictory testimony unpersuaded that this decisive influx of black voters was an accident. Whether the racial makeup of the county was displayed on his computer screen or just fixed in his head, the court thought Hoffeller's denial of race-based districting rang hollow. Finally, an expert report by Dr. Stephen and Sola Beharie lent circumstantial support to the plaintiff's race-not-politics case, and Sola Beharie looked at the six counties overlapping with District 12, essentially the region from which the mapmakers could have drawn the district's population. The question he asked was, who from those counties actually ended up in District 12? The answer he found was only 16% of the region's white registered voters, but 64% of the black ones. And Sola Beharry next controlled for party registration, but discovered that doing so made essentially no difference. For example, only 18% of the region's white Democrats wound up in District 12, whereas 65% of the black Democrats did. The upshot was that regardless of party, a black voter was three to four times more likely than a white voter to cast his ballot within District 12's borders. Those stark disparities led Ansola Beharie to conclude that race and not party was the dominant factor in District 12's design. His report, as the district court held, 
thus tended to confirm the plaintiff's direct evidence of racial predominance. The district court's assessment that all this evidence proved racial predominance clears the bar of clear error review. The court emphasized that the districting plan's own architects had repeatedly described the influx of African Americans into District 12 as a Section 5 compliance measure, not a side effect of political gerrymandering. And those contemporaneous descriptions comported with the court's credibility determinations about the trial testimony, that Watt told the truth when he recounted Rucho's resolve to hit a majority BVAP target, and, conversely, that Hoffeller skirted the truth when he claimed to have followed only race-blind criteria in drawing district lines. We cannot disrespect such credibility judgments. And more generally, we will not take it upon ourselves to weigh the trial evidence as if we were the first to hear it. No doubt other interpretations of that evidence were permissible. Maybe we would have evaluated the testimony differently had we presided over the trial. Or then again, maybe we would not have. Either way, and it is only this which matters, we are far from having a definite and firm conviction that the district court made a mistake in concluding from the record before it that racial considerations predominated in District 12's design. Section B. The state mounts a final legal rather than factual attack on the district court's finding of racial predominance. When race and politics are competing explanations of a district's lines, urges North Carolina, the party challenging the district must introduce a particular kind of circumstantial evidence, an alternative map that achieves the legislature's political objectives while improving racial balance. That is true, the state says, irrespective of what other evidence is in the case, even if the plaintiff offers powerful direct proof that the legislature adopted the map it did for racial reasons. Because the plaintiffs here, as all agree, did not present such a counter map, North Carolina concludes that they cannot prevail. The dissent echoes that argument. We have no doubt that an alternative districting plan of the kind North Carolina describes can serve as key evidence in a race versus politics dispute. One often highly persuasive way to disprove a state's contention that politics drove a district's lines is to show that the legislature had the capacity to accomplish all its partisan goals without moving so many members of a minority group into the district. If you were really sorting by political behavior instead of skin color, 
you would have done, or at least could just as well have done, this. Such would have, could have, and should have arguments are a familiar means of undermining a claim that an action was based on a permissible rather than a prohibited ground. But they are hardly the only means. Suppose that the plaintiff in a dispute like this one introduced scores of leaked emails from state officials instructing their mapmaker to pack as many black voters as possible into a district or telling him to make sure its BVAP hit 75%. Based on such evidence, a court could find that racial rather than political factors predominated in a district's design, with or without an alternative map. And so too, in cases lacking that kind of smoking gun, as long as the evidence offered satisfies the plaintiff's burden of proof. In Bush v. Vera, for example, this court upheld a finding of racial predominance based on substantial direct evidence of the legislature's racial motivations, including credible testimony from political figures and statements made in a Section 5 preclearance submission, plus circumstantial evidence that redistrictors had access to racial but not political data at the block-by-block level needed to explain their intricate designs. Not a single member of the court thought that the absence of a countermap made any difference. Similarly, it does not matter in this case where the plaintiff's introduction of mostly direct and some circumstantial evidence, documents issued in the redistricting process, testimony of government officials, expert analysis of demographic patterns, gave the district court a sufficient basis, sans any map, to resolve the race or politics question. A plaintiff's task, in other words, is simply to persuade the trial court without any special evidentiary prerequisite that race, not politics, was the predominant consideration in deciding to place a significant number of voters within or without a particular district. That burden of proof we have often held is demanding. And because that is so, a plaintiff will sometimes need an alternative map as a practical matter to make his case. But in no area of our equal protection law have we forced plaintiffs to submit one particular form of proof to prevail. Nor would it make sense to do so here. The Equal Protection Clause prohibits the unjustified drawing of district lines based on race. An alternative map is merely an evidentiary tool to show that such a substantive violation has occurred. 
Neither its presence nor its absence can itself resolve a racial gerrymandering claim. North Carolina insists, however, that we have already said to the contrary, more particularly that our decision in Cromartie, too, imposed a non-negotiable alternative map requirement. As the state observes, Cromartie, too, reversed as clearly erroneous a trial court's finding that race, rather than politics, predominated in the assignment of voters to an earlier incarnation of District 12. And as the state emphasizes, a part of our opinion faulted the Cromartie plaintiffs for failing to offer a convincing account of how the legislature could have accomplished its political goals other than through the map it chose. We there stated... In a case such as this one, where majority-minority districts are at issue and where racial identification correlates highly with political affiliation, the party attacking the legislatively drawn boundaries must show, at least, that the legislature could have achieved its legitimate political objectives in alternative ways that are comparably consistent with traditional districting principles. That party must also show that those districting alternatives would have brought about significantly greater racial balance. According to North Carolina, that passage alone settles this case because it makes an alternative map essential to a finding that District 12 a majority-minority district in which race and partisanship are correlated, was a racial gerrymander. Once again, the dissent says the same. But the reasoning of Cromartie, too, belies that reading. The court's opinion nowhere attempts to explicate or justify the categorical rule that the state claims to find there. And given the strangeness of that rule, which would treat a mere form of evidence as the very substance of a constitutional claim, we cannot think that the court adopted it without any explanation. Still more, the entire thrust of the Cromartie II opinion runs counter to an inflexible counter-map requirement. If the court had adopted that rule, it would have no need to weigh each piece of evidence in the case and determine whether, taken together, they were adequate to show the predominance of race in the legislature's line-drawing process. But that is exactly what Cromartie too did, over a span of 20 pages and in exhaustive detail. Item by item, the court discussed and dismantled the supposed proof, both direct and circumstantial, of race-based redistricting. All that careful analysis would have been superfluous, that dogged effort wasted, 
if the court viewed the absence or inadequacy of a single form of evidence as necessarily dooming a gerrymandering claim. Rightly understood, the passage from Cromarty II had a different and narrower point arising from and reflecting the evidence offered in that case. The direct evidence of a racial gerrymander, we thought, was extremely weak. We said of one piece that it says little or nothing about whether race played a predominant role in drawing district lines. We said of another that it is less persuasive than the kinds of direct evidence we have found significant in other redistricting cases. Nor did the report of the plaintiff's expert impress us over much. In our view, it offered little insight into the legislature's true motive. That left a set of arguments of the would-have, could-have variety. For example, the plaintiffs offered several maps purporting to show how the legislature might have swapped some mostly black and mostly white precincts to obtain greater racial balance without harming the legislature's political objective. But the court determined that none of those proposed exchanges would have worked as advertised. Essentially, the plaintiffs, you could have redistricted differently arguments, failed on their own terms. Hence emerged the demand quoted above. For maps that would actually show what the plaintiffs had not. In a case like Cromarty II, that is, one in which the plaintiffs had meager direct evidence of a racial gerrymander and needed to rely on evidence of foregone alternatives, only maps of that kind could carry the day. But this case is most unlike Cromarty II, even though it involves the same electoral district some 20 years on. This case turned not on the possibility of creating more optimally constructed districts, but on direct evidence of the General Assembly's intent in creating the actual District 12, including many hours of trial testimony subject to credibility determinations. That evidence, the district court plausibly found, itself satisfied the plaintiff's burden of debunking North Carolina's it-was-really-politics defense. There was no need for an alternative map to do the same job. And we pay our precedents no respect when we extend them far beyond the circumstances for which they were designed. Part 5 Applying a clear error standard, we uphold the district court's conclusions that racial considerations predominated in designing both District 1 and District 12. For District 12, 
that is all we must do because North Carolina has made no attempt to justify race-based districting there. For District 1, we further uphold the District Court's decision that Section 2 of the VRA gave North Carolina no good reason to reshuffle voters because of their race. We accordingly affirm the judgment of the District Court. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.